0: Chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. Uh, everybody should be within arm's reach of one if, you, if you're interested. Uh, the screen's great, but we really love it when we have people with Bibles in their lap looking at God's Word. There's just something special that God does with it there. Um, and, I, and so I'll, I'll take the next step and say, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, don't have access to one, take that one. Let it be our gift to you. Uh, we, we value God's Word here. Um, we believe that it's far more important and effectual than anything I'm going to say today. And so I'm going to do my best to, to unpack the scriptures this morning, but God doesn't really need me. And so uh, if you ignore everything I say today, but you take a Bible home and you start reading that every day, I'll call that a win. I'm, I'm dead serious. And so um, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one. Uh, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, we are... Rolling along now through a series, uh, a new series that we're calling The Story of God. And the premise is incredibly simple. We're taking a slow walk through the major characters of the Old Testament. We got some plans for the New Testament too, but that's way down the road because the Old Testament makes up about two thirds of the Bible. Right? Uh, so we're taking a slow walk through the, the main characters of the Old Testament and we're answering the question how does their story help us understand and tell the story of the, the much larger, much more beautiful story of God? All right? uh, Jesus, uh, with his disciples, uh, shortly after he was resurrected, he's walking from, uh, uh, the, from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And in Luke 24, uh, Jesus tells some guys who don't know it's him. He's disguised himself. He says that the, the writings of Moses and the prophets, and in another conversation later, he adds the Psalms in the mix here. So pretty much the whole Old Testament. He says, that's about me. And if you had read it correctly and believed everything that was there, you wouldn't be surprised by everything that's been going on the last couple of days. All right? That the whole Old Testament is about me. And so it doesn't mean that those stories aren't, uh, don't exist on their own, there aren't things to grab from them on their own. But if we read them correctly, we walk away from those stories loving and understanding Jesus better. Right? That the aim of those stories, the reason why God hands them down to us, is not for some moralized lesson of be brave, be this, be that, don't do this, is to fall more deeply in love and more fully understand who our God is. That's Jesus's point in Luke 24. He also makes that point in John chapter 5 in another conversation. How does this particular story tell me about Jesus? That's the question we're aiming to answer as we walk through all these characters. So we've looked so far at the lives of Adam and of Noah and of Abraham. So we're still early on, but we're going to stack up a bunch of these on top of each other. But here's the deal. Even if you don't have much of a church background, those are guys who probably already have heard about, know a little bit about. Maybe you've read their stories before. Today I want to look at a story of a lady That doesn't normally make the Mount Rushmore of the character list. Doesn't make it into the hall of heroes that we usually accumulate for our our kids' Bible stories and that kind of thing. Sarah. And because it's Mother's Day, Sarah may just slot in perfect. But don't worry, this won't be force-fed. Because Sarah's story, in the context of what we're aiming at answering is actually really valuable to us so you ready to jump into it we've been saying that for the last few weeks we've got uh, a big question in front of us but we can make that question simpler by answering four smaller questions right Do you remember what those questions were you don't remember what those questions were all right how was this person raised up what made this person a seemingly bad choice what did god do to redeem them And how does this story preach the gospel? If we answer those four questions faithfully, if we answer those four questions successfully, I think we're left in a really good and actually easy place to answer the question of how does this story tell me about Jesus? Okay, all right, so let's look at Sarah. Our girl's got a profile. All right, Sarai or Sarah? Why two names? Because God changes her name, right? She's born as Sarai. Later in her life, God changes her name to Sarah. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the life of Abraham, her her husband, right? And so God changes his name. Uh, God changes her name at the exact same time in Genesis chapter 17, all right? But it happens super late in their lives. Like Sarah is 89, I think, at the time. And so she spends the majority of her life as sarai and most of what we're going to read this morning is calls her sarai you may be more familiar with the name sarah but sarai is what you're going to hear more often because god changes her name way late in her life all right so what else do we know about this girl just like abraham seriously old (laughs) nicknamed the laugher the free woman of promise the free woman of promise All right, so let's get into our first question. How is this person raised up? Genesis chapter 11. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Niscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot his son, uh, the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, and they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When, the, uh, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land uh, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. But from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, so some of you all are probably like beginning to wonder, isn't this the exact same text we read two weeks ago when we talked about Abram? It is. <laughs> the introduction of Abram, guess what? It's also the introduction of his wife Sarai, right? It's not that complicated. And just like a couple of weeks ago, what do we learn? Pretty much nothing. Right? We don't learn anything special about Sarah here. She doesn't come from some kind of special family. She's, we we kind of get the genealogy here, but there's nothing special in the genealogy. She just kind of shows up. So Sarah's story doesn't start with any fanfare. God shows up and calls Abram her husband, to leave what was comfortable and safe and instead follow him. And what does Sarai do? She goes with her husband. So Sarai's story doesn't start with some incredible story of God showing up to her. Sarai's story starts with her simply walking in obedience, right? Sarai's story is a simple story of following Abram where God tells Abram to go. She's playing the role of the obedient wife here, right? But we are told something important about Sarai early on it was found in chapter 11 verse 30 right now Sarai was barren she had no child now the weight of that sentence is going to strike everybody in this room in, in different levels right most of the guys in this room wash right over you'd have no idea what's going on here but for our ladies hits you in different ways right some of our, our ladies are they're nowhere near child stuff, and maybe it's not even on your radar, or it never has been on your radar, maybe you never want it to be on your radar, and you just, like, you feel sorry for Sarai, but you've never really walked through that, and so you know, what, what do you do? And there's other ladies in the room who, who do have kids. Maybe they're in the house, and they're, you know, they're doing kid stuff, so problems, all right? Or, or maybe uh, your kids are grown up and long gone, and, and, and you understand a little bit better, what Sarai's walking through. But then there are other ladies who either because the timing is off or because the physical stuff just isn't happening, you understand exactly what Sarai's walking through. You understand the personal pain that's involved. You you know the questions that are swirling around in Sarai's head because of the same questions that swirl around in your head. Questions of value and of calling. You know intimately what Sarah is walking through here. You've got a high level of empathy for. So if that's you, hear me say this. Before we get into the rest of the text, because that's coming. mother's day is painful for some right if that's you hear me say man i'm glad you're here today and like the video that we saw earlier when we began our service press into the life of the church that's literally one of the reasons god gave us that community to come alongside and to encourage and to build up and to serve And so, even though there's all these different levels of empathy in the room for Sarai, even though we're all over the place in, in understanding the personal sorrow that she's walking through, there's also the academic side that we need to push a little bit too. Because Sarai doesn't just have the personal pain involved. Sarai also lives in a culture also lives in a culture where the inability to give her husband an heir directly reflects on her value. So yes, there is the personal pain, but there's a cultural level to this, right? It's not just the, the pressure that Sarah is putting on herself. The neighbors have been whispering behind her back for years. Sarah' is walking through a dark place, right? This isn't an easy life for Sarai. Yes, walking in obedience, there's good things that we can point to, but Sarai struggles with a lot of things that's going on here. And so the promise from God to Abram that he's going to make him a great nation, listen, that sounds outlandish on its own, but to Sarai, in her head, that's carrying some baggage, right? It probably stings when he says it. But even though Sarai has lived with barrenness for years, that doesn't mean that she hasn't had the opportunity to play the mom role. Did you catch that in the text? Sarai seems to serve as a sort of adoptive mom to Lot. Their nephew, right? By this point in the story, what's happened? Lot's father, Haran, has died. And so when God calls Abram and Sarai to pick up and and leave to go where he tells them, what does Lot do? goes with them, right? And so, by all accounts, it seems like Sarai kind of serves as a foster mom of sorts to Lot. So what do we take from that? We take this, that regardless of whether or not God has given the blessing for the things she desperately wants, she's still walking in obedience to use the giftings and passions that, she, that God gave her with, right? Those two things don't always have to be so tied together. Even though God hasn't given her the blessing of what she wanted to use those giftings and, blessings, or giftings and passions on, she's still using them in whatever way God has opened up to her. But we also learn another thing about Sarai. So she's apparently very beautiful. Look at uh, verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, chicken. Uh, But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, apparently Sarai is very beautiful, right? But it seems to hurt her more than help her, right? It causes problems for Sarai. And this seems counterintuitive in the world that we live in, right? Aren't we, aren't we told that this is a world where beautiful gets you something? Like, like, can we just be honest? Don't we all kind of long to be more beautiful? Aren't we sold something in our culture that says uh, to, to pour resources and effort and energy into making yourself more beautiful is an investment in your future? It doesn't seem to work out that way for Sarah, does it? For Sarah, I, her beauty seems to create as many problems as it fixes I think she'd probably have a word or two to say to the people of our culture, right? And then there's this whole mess that Abram does absolutely a poor job of protecting her, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you've got this story, and then later on in chapter 20 of Genesis, uh, about 20, 25 years later, this story plays out almost the exact same way again with a different king. Abram is not the protector of the family. He is struggling with some stuff, right? But God does protect her. God does guard her. In both of those stories, what happens? Before the king can act upon whatever's going on here, God intervenes, gives this king a dream, warns him. He rescues Sarai out of there. Regardless of her husband's failures, regardless of her husband's failures, Sarah is protected by God. But while Sarah had a lot of unfortunate things happen to her, and while she may be the victim of her husband's sin over and over and over again, that doesn't mean Sarah's walking clean. She's got her own junk. So we have a second question for this morning. What made Sarah, Sarai a bad choice? Genesis 16. Uh, This story is uh, happening about 10 years after what happened in chapter 12. Uh, Nothing has changed yet, though. God has promised them a kid, but a kid hasn't come yet. But now instead of being 75 and 65, they're 85 and 75. So things are starting to ramp up here, right? So, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Verse 2, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Dumb move. So Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Okay, so Sarai realizes that they ain't getting any younger, and so she starts into the scheming, right? She comes up with a plan. Well, maybe God really meant this. Maybe this is how God's going to bring about what he said he was going to do. So what does she do? She gives her servant to Abram as another wife. It says Hagar is an an Egyptian. So in all likelihood, it doesn't say so in the text, we can't say with certainty, but in all likelihood, that means Hagar is one of the female slaves that was given to them when they tricked the Pharaoh the first time when they were down in Egypt. This whole thing is a big hot mess. Right? Right? This is just absolute chaos being bubbled to the surface here. But Sarai starts conniving. She begins to justify things in her head, and she drums up a false humility that says, well, if I just get out of the way, then God can finally. Now, what I call that a false humility, because it doesn't matter what kind of wrapping paper it comes in. Any kind of attitude or posture that says, I can stand in the way of what God wants to do is not humility. It's arrogance. Follow me here. The eternal and all-powerful creator king of the cosmos is not handcuffed to Sarai's barrenness. Think about this for a second. It's not slowing him down the second that God wants to give them a child, that child is coming. And there is nothing about Sarai, either physically or morally, that can stand in God's way because God is not submissive to Sarai. But Sarai starts scheming. She says, if I just get out of the way, God doesn't need Sarai to find a workaround for his plan in order for it to be successful. God's not sitting back going, I I threw it out there, y'all put the pieces together. But if that wasn't bad enough, even though this was all Sarai's idea, it gets worse because she doesn't exactly become righteous towards Hagar after this moment. Sarai's posture toward Hagar is terrible. In fact, you can call it downright deplorable. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarah immediately regrets her decision, but we need to hear this and, and just lock this down today. It's not because she had a sudden realization that this was wrong. It's because it worked. Right? And then what happens? Hagar conceives, Hagar shows that she conceives, and Sarah is furious about it because the plan actually worked. Hagar conceives and she can't take it. She doesn't have this sudden realization of morality. She doesn't have this sudden realization of righteousness. Oh, I have sinned against my God because I tried to to scheme my way and fix his plan. No, she came up with a plan of her own devices. That plan succeeded and she couldn't handle it. And so, what does she do? She complains to Abram, right? What does Abram do? She's your slave, do whatever you want. So, what does Sarah do? Text says she mistreats her and Hagar runs away. For homework later, go read the rest of chapter 16. Hagar runs off into the wilderness and watch what God does to rescue her out of the wilderness. Like we tend to think that this story is only about Abraham and Sarai, the Bible tells us that God, the angel of the Lord, shows himself to Hagar. That he's gentle with her. He tells her she's going to have a boy. Tells her what to name that boy. He's gentle with her. He ultimately calls her to return back to her mistress and serve her. And so even though Hagar flees in that moment, she comes back into the picture shortly after. It's a great story. Go read that on your own later. Sarai mistreats Hagar and Hagar runs away. But Hagar comes back because of God's gentleness. But then later on in chapter 21, after God does give them a son in Isaac, as soon as that boy is weaned and is viable, Sarah comes to, to Abram and says, I don't want her son to share the inheritance with my son. Get rid of her. Cast her out into the wilderness, she says. They live in a culture where casting you out into the wilderness is pretty much a death sentence. Sarah knows what she's doing. She doesn't care. And so, even though she has received the amazing blessing that God has been promising her for years, Sarah's attitude towards Hagar is about as unchristlike as they come. But there's another reason why Sarah is a seemingly bad choice it's because Sarah laughed. Genesis 18. Sarah laughed. Look at verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. So call time out here for a second. Think about what's going on in this moment. I mentioned it for a second with Hagar. But think about what's going on in this moment. It says that the Lord appeared to him. Let's wrap our heads around that for a second. Like there's a couple of times in Abraham's story where it says that the Word of the Lord came to him like that happens in in chapter 12 that we read just a second ago the Word of the Lord came to him so Abraham hears God speak and God and he responds in obedience to what God said right but a couple of times three times I think in Abraham's life at least what the text tells us is that an angel of the Lord manifests himself not an angel as in generic angel but the angel of the Lord which means and I, I can't really wrap my head around this because I don't know exactly how it works. But God somehow manifests Himself in a human form, maybe without flesh, because He hasn't the incarnation hasn't happened yet. But He manifests Himself, shows Himself as human-like, at least in front of Abraham's eyes. It says, "Abram, this is what I want you to do." And so let's keep reading. He says, "Verse one: and The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre." Uh, As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Uh, That three men that that it talks about in chapter 19, it clarifies that that's God and two angels. So don't think Trinity there, but also true. All right, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Uh, When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarai, and said, Quick, three sea of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk in the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." Right? But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So God shows up, he manifests himself in front of Abraham, and Abraham starts doing somersaults to be a good host, right? To show hospitality towards these guys, because he knows that these are no ordinary visitors. And so what does he do? Do He kills the fattened calf, he tells Sarah to make some cakes out of the good flour they keep on the top shelf for just the visitors, you know, that kind of setup. Right? And then he stands there awkwardly, apparently, while they eat it. Like, do you know how long it takes to slaughter a cow? That's not a quick task. Even if you're like the guy who does that all day, every day, if that's your job, that's not a five-minute project. So Abraham says, Hey, let me grab just a little piece of something so so you can be refreshed. And then he goes to make make this massive meal for them, right? They roll out the finest stuff. They want to be good hosts. But during this interaction, God asks where Sarah is at. He makes the promise that by this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. And the Bible tells us that Sarah, who's totally eavesdropping on this conversation, (laughs) hears that and laughs to herself. Now, Abraham can't hear what's going on, but God is not restricted to those kind of issues. And so he asks the question, why'd Sarah laugh? what does it say happened? She denies it. Think about this for a second. God shows up in Genesis chapter 12 when they're 75 and 65. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your family massive. They don't have any kids yet. They've never been able to have kids. They've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. It just never worked for them. They've probably accepted it in some form. But then God makes this grandiose promise. I'm going to make you you a nation. I'm not just going to give you a kid. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And they believe God. And they go where God tells them to go. They do what God tells them to do. And yeah, there's some hangups there. There's some massive sin issues in their life. And, uh, but God has remained faithful and, and they're hanging out. And the years start going by. One after the next and after the next and the next and the next and the next and the next. And he shows up 10 years later and repeats the promise. Oh, sure, whatever, God. And the next and the next and the next and the next and the next. And then 24 years later. Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89. God shows up and says, this time next year, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you this time next year. If anyone in history, anyone in history gets to say, God didn't come through on his promise to me, it's Sarah. Now, no one actually gets to say that, but if anybody gets the closest to that, it's Sarah. Sarah. So she laughs to herself. God calls her out on it. And like many of us or I'll just be honest, like me, I didn't laugh. That's not what you heard. No, you did laugh. Sarah is struggling to trust God in this moment. She has a lot of reasons to do so. None of them are good enough. She has a lot of reasons. Sarah is struggling to trust God in this moment because she thinks that her circumstances are bigger than God's ability. So God asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? So what did God do to redeem her? Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to them. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who will have... Who? Excuse me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Okay, so how does God redeem her? We've already seen a couple of things. One, that God protected her from Abraham's stupidity. Over and over again, it seems. Two, God fulfilled his promises to Abraham and Sarah despite her failure to trust him. There's a third way. God gives her a son. In a culture where providing an heir is of the highest honor for a woman. Like we may read this story in our, in our modern times and go, well oh, that's nice, he, he, he let them have the child they so desperately wanted. Remember value, cultural value and cachet is attached to this. He gives her a son. That line, everyone who hears will laugh over me. Yeah, it's tied back to the accusation of laughter earlier, but listen, she's not talking about mockingly. She's talking about in celebration. God blesses her at an extremely high level here, and so she's not just finally given a child, she's given a son, but she's not just finally given a son. She is given an heir in a culture that thinks that giving an heir is the end-all be-all of existence. There's also a fourth way. Abraham honors her in her death. We don't have time to look at it this morning. Um, if you've got time later, go check out Genesis 23. In that story, Sarah has just passed away, and Abraham goes to the, the elders of the town to purchase a burial site, a cave. Right? Um, we need to remember that Abraham and Sarah are sojourners in the land, which means they don't actually own any land. God has given it to him, but that's just as a promise at the moment. They're, they're visitors in this place. And so Abraham travels to the elders who do own the land and, and goes to great lengths to, to purchase a cave. And, and here's what's so crazy about that. This is in a culture where a shallow grave off the side of the road wouldn't have been seen as a disrespectful thing. It would have been okay. But Abraham goes to great lengths to purchase a cave to be the resting place of his family, beginning with Sarah. And so he honors her in her death. It's a cool story. Go read it for yourself. We need to answer our fourth question this morning. How does Sarah's story preach the gospel? Well, for starters, God is faithful to keep his end of the deal even when we never make it all the way on board. Why do I point this out? Because this is literally the opposite of what's often trotted out as Christian. Things that are squarely in the the prosperity gospel kind of category. The think the right thoughts and you'll bring whatever blessing to fruition kind of stuff. Sarah doesn't trust God in this moment. She laughed. She scoffed at the idea. If you read Sarah's story correctly, it flies in the face of the name it claimant it crowd. It's the exact opposite. Why do I point this out? Because I've personally been in the room before. When a preacher, and I use that term loosely, when a preacher opened up this text and said, God was just waiting for Abraham and Sarah to finally have enough of faith, and then they gave, he gave them a kid. Sarah doesn't trust God yet. Her story plays out. God gives the blessing before she trusts him. This isn't about Abraham and Sarah drumming up the right thoughts and drumming up the right kind of faith and drumming up the right kind of trust in God. This is the exact opposite of that story. God, in fact, God seems to wait too long on purpose. This isn't about Abraham and Sarah finally getting to the right place where their thoughts and their hearts were aligned. No, God seems to intentionally wait 25 years to give them a kid because he wanted the world to know how ludicrous he was working. This ain't on Abraham and Sarah, watch what I'm doing, he says. And as the world goes, that'll never happen. Surely your God has failed you. God gets to go. Now check out who I am. Let me show you who I am. God is faithful to keep his end of the deal even when we never make it all the way on board. There's a second way. There's a second way that Sarah's story preaches the gospel and Paul helps us get there. The blessing of God comes through the free woman of promise instead of the slave woman of flesh. Turn with with me to Galatians 4. The Apostle Paul helps us Figure this out. I said a couple of weeks ago uh, that Galatians is a letter written to a church in the first century that was struggling with a works based mentality that they were adding on to, lumping into the gospel. Like they they rightly understood that you come to Jesus by faith, but they had this false belief that they were struggling with that in order to stay in God's good graces, you had to fulfill all the Jewish laws and customs. All right? All right and that, that meant everything in the Jewish laws and customs the dietary laws, the circumcision, all of the above. All right? And so uh, they, they had this struggle that, yeah, God accepted us, but if God really was going to be pleased with us we needed to add all this other stuff in all right that's the context of the letter to the galatians and they had this group of people called the judaizers that came in and said yeah actually you're right about that and so uh we're here jesus is great and all but let's do all this other stuff too and then god will be finally happy with you and so paul who's really really shy writes them a letter says this tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not listen to the law for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Uh, for slavery, She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, and then Paul cites Isaiah 51 here. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break Forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, so what in the world is going on there? It's kind of hard to wrap our heads around, right? Especially in the time that we got left. Let me give you the Cliff's Notes version. In the process of Paul telling these people that adding the law back to the gospel will never get you anywhere... That our man-made, human-level efforts to try to please God are actually going to complicate the matter here and cause some problems. In the process of Paul telling them that, he pulls out the story of Sarah and Hagar. He says, I got an allegory for you. I don't know if it's actually an allegory, but that's what he calls it. He says, I got an allegory for you. He picks up the story of Sarah and Hagar and he, and he uses it. And so think about it this for a second. How do we know, why do we know Hagar's name? Hagar doesn't come into this picture unless Sarah and Abraham start tinkering with God's plan here, right? We don't know who Hagar is unless they start trying to manipulate things and put things in their own order and critique and correct God's plan. They put forth a human level effort and try to meet God in the middle. How does that work out? Badly. The answer is badly. It was a failure before it even started because trying to help God is really just not trusting him at all. Trying to help God is really just not trusting him at all. Paul here says that obedience to the law is a lot like Hagar. Our man-made effort will not get us there. It's a failure before it even starts. That's what Paul is using in that really convoluted allegory. The children of promise will not come through the slave woman. There's also a free woman in our story, right? Paul doesn't say her name, but we know he's talking about. God's promise for his people came through Sarah, not through Hagar. And In the same way, God's redemption can never come through our white-knuckled effort to fulfill the law. It must come through the child of promise. Jesus, the gospel is not now, nor has it ever been about cleaning yourself up to make yourself presentable to God, either at the beginning or anywhere in the middle. Neither you nor I are capable of pulling that off. It will only ever result in spiritual slavery. But Jesus came. He came to set spiritual slaves free. He died on the cross to pay the debt owed by our inability to fulfill the law of God. And He adopts us into His family and makes us free heirs of promise along with Him. So, how does Sarah's story, a part of the story of God, then? Well, like we've been saying all along, we have one overarching theme, right? God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And for our purposes today, God raised up Sarah to be a shadow of a more perfect Sarah to come in Jesus. Sarah had some good things going, but she ultimately needed somebody who who was more faithful than her and could fulfill what she could never fulfill. The story of God is no small deal. It is the greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. Is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, and that's that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. That's what this story is all about. Sarah's story is great. It's a drop in the pond, though. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you press into God, right? How? Through his word. It's the primary means by which he's given us to know Him and so chase after him there. but we can take another step into this, right? Maybe your story is a lot like Sarahs. You've got more than a few examples in your past of you trying to find a workaround for God's plan. If I just tweak this, then, he'll, then he can finally get there, kind of ideas. And you've justified things and manipulated things, and even in your own head, they sound righteous. They sound like they're they're getting you somewhere. It's really just not trusting God. It's really just a failure on our part to, to believe that God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do. And so, listen, today's a good day to repent of that. Today's a good day to confess your sin and press into the God who is patient with you in spite of you not because you've earned some leash here it's because he's good so press in this morning if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of jesus man i'm glad you're here we hope that you find this to be a a safe place to work through the truth claims of jesus and his gospel listen you can respond this morning as well you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about how by confessing your sin and calling on him as lord Believe He's who He says He is, that He's going to do what He says He's going to do, and follow Him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. i have a couple of folks down here to talk and pray with you, if that's helpful for you. I'll be down here too. I'd love to walk you through what that means. You don't need me, but I'm here to help. But Let's all respond to God's Word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Sarah. God, my, my life is full of example after example after example of me trying to fix your plan. Of me trying to modernize your way. Streamline it a little bit. Tweak it so it pleases me a little bit better. but God when I'm honest I know what that really means rip my ideas from me I am a conniver at the core but you are good and you love us with a great love and you are patient with us in spite of us and so like Sarah would you continue to show yourself would you continue to, to press in even though I push away You are good. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you open up hearts to know you this morning? Would you reveal yourself, show yourself, convinced that when you do that, we are forever changed by you. It is impossible not to love you. God, help us respond well. Help us sing well. In your name we pray. Amen.